The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my honor to welcome New York State farmer Klaus Martins. Klaus began his farming career as a conventional grower in the 1970s. He and his partner, Mary Howell, began to transition their farm in the early 1990s. He and his wife now farm 1,400 acres of certified organic crops and operate Lakeview Organic Grain, a certified organic feed and seed business. They are frequent speakers at conferences and have written extensively on organic farming. Organic research is a strong component of their farming operation, and they have conducted on-farm research independently and in cooperation with university researchers. I have the honor of knowing Klaus Martins from the Organic Farming Research Foundation Board, and every time I speak with Klaus, I am more enlightened about how our health is connected to our soil and our farming. So, Klaus, welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Well, it is my pleasure, and I wanted you to enlighten our listeners a little bit about what's going on at USDA with regard to genetically modified crops and the new 2,4-D crops that are coming down the pike a little too rapidly for my comfort level, and a little bit about your story and how you yourself became an organic farmer. So let's start there. Your biography says that you began your career as a conventional grower in the 70s, and what happened then? Well, I could back all the way up to when I was in college. I considered my father the most backward farmer in the world. Uh, he still used an old rotation. You know, he was a European peasant at heart and had a diverse group of crops. Didn't use off-farm inputs except the bare minimum. And, of course, I went to the land-grant university system and learned how to farm right. And when I came home, we had the Green Revolution on our farm overnight. We did see yields go up. Uh, we had some phenomenal results the first couple of years from bringing in the chemicals. What we found, though, within a few years, and I think part of this is because the transition happened so fast that we had that we went from one type of system to another, that maybe we could see some of the changes that came slower on other farms. But we noticed very quickly that it took more and more dollars worth of inputs to get less and less response. As the soil changed, the responses were different. Hmm. We found that, for instance, the year after we plowed down a legume crop, like a hay crop, we made really made our very best yields. We had low costs. The next year, we had to use a lot more fertilizer. We had to use a lot more herbicides. We had a lot more weeds. And our profit went down accordingly. And we saw very quickly a change in the makeup of our weed species in the fields, where things that had not been problems when we first converted very quickly became major weed problems. And we started seeing the problem of resistance to herbicides and weeds. Of course, this is simple evolution. And in the first years, our small doses of herbicides just did a terrific job. And within the second and third year, we started seeing things escaping. And pretty soon, we were having to mix two different kinds of herbicides together to get 
in complete control, and then we found that we had to start mixing three kinds of herbicides together. And it kept getting more and more expensive, and the profits kept getting less and less. So that, that put us under some pressure. Another thing that I didn't see at the time, but it was a real revelation to me later, when I was little, I used to love to ride along on the plow when my father was plowing, and there was a smell that came off the soil. And that smell was kind of ingrained in my memory. I didn't notice that that smell was gone after we'd been farming with chemicals for a few years. But I did notice when we converted to organic, when it came back. And that was a real revelation to me that something in the soil was making that smell. And something in the soil wasn't there anymore to do it when we changed the way we farmed. And that, that told me we were probably having a lot more profound effects than we realized. Now, I'm, I want to give you a quick rundown of the history of herbicides and herbicide use. And I think this is really pertinent since we're talking about 2,4-D being approved, uh, resistance in these genetically modified crops. Back around the time of World War II, one of the spoils of war was 2,4-D. At least that's the way I understood it. it. DuPont started making 2,4-D. I think it was a German company that had originally discovered it. And, of course, there's a lot of money to be made if you can sell a product to every farmer in the country. And farmers were using it with phenomenal results. Uh, 2,4-D is an auxin. It's a plant hormone. It Just a, a really small amount caused devastating damage to most of the weeds. And if you were careful, it didn't hurt the crop too much, although farmers quickly noticed that when they put on more, that they started seeing damage in the crops. The other thing in New York that was noticed was if you had a grape farmer living next door to you and you sprayed 2,4-D on a day when it was windy or when conditions were good for volatilization, sometimes the vineyard next door got devastated. And we had a body of legal actions in New York, and this goes back all the way back into the 40s and 50s, that said if a farmer is spraying 2,4-D and damages the neighbor's grapes, he's liable for the damages. And there were many very expensive settlements that happened because of this problem. The other thing about 2,4-D and actually all the herbicides, but that one was particular. It has a smell, and it's very pungent. And you can tell if somebody is spraying it even a half mile away or even a mile away if the wind is coming in the right way. And it didn't dawn on me at the time when I was little or probably our whole family, but if we're smelling it, it means we're inhaling it into our lungs where it's passing across the barrier into our blood, mm-hmm. and it's entering our bodies. And I, you know, looking back, we had friends that were poisoned by insecticides, and afterwards they would, the ones that recovered, would be very, very sensitive to these things. If they smelled it, they would immediately start getting sick, and it's because that uh, inhalation route is so important. Mm -hmm. And with time, and it didn't take very long, the character of the weed populations changed, and 2,4-D was still working really well on certain weeds, but suddenly the farms had... Other weeds, they were grassy weeds that had not been a problem before, but they they became a problem because 2,4-D was broad spectrum but didn't get all the grasses. The reason it worked so well on corn, the corn was a grass, and what we were doing within a few years, we had selected for grassy weeds, and 2,4-D didn't work anymore. It worked on the weeds that it controlled, but it didn't work on all the weeds that were in the field. So then... 
another miracle happened, quote-unquote, that was atrazine, the mm. first of the triazine herbicides, and that would kill the grasses. So then farmers were mixing 2,4-D and atrazine together. And incidentally, farmers at that point were still cultivating most of these acres. So that, you know, the effect of the resistance building up and the effect of these species changing was somewhat muted because they were still, you know, still using mechanical weed control. Mm-hmm. That was about to change. With time, atrazine started losing its effectiveness and we started needing new quote unquote needing new classes of herbicides. And Alachlor was one that came along that by now we had the perennial grasses like quackgrass were being controlled less well by atrazine, but we had a whole new class, and those were the summer annuals, foxtail, barnyard grass, panicums. Those weeds appeared to be totally immune to atrazine. So then we started mixing alachlor, so the mixture became more complex. There'd be 2,4-D, and then an annual grass killer, and then the regular grass killer, atrazine. So there were three, quite often three different chemicals being mixed, and each one, each new class seemed to cost a lot more than the old class, which we kind of, we'd grin and bear it and pay the price because we couldn't handle the weeds. Now, by this time, it was being recommended that we could save a lot of money by not using mechanical cultivation anymore, and that would offset some of the costs that we were paying for these chemicals. That it really accelerated the resistance process. Because when we were no longer using mechanical controls in conjunction with the chemicals, we would be creating an environment in the field, and we were growing more and more corn. And I, we, I'm talking about as an industry, mm-hmm. so that year after year we would plant the same crop, create exactly the same environment, and then by not cultivating or mechanically controlling weeds, we were selecting for which plants, which weeds would do best in that environment and letting them all go to seed, mm-hmm. which the seeds would drop in that spot. And the next year, we would do the same thing again. And we maybe didn't notice it right away, but we were selecting strongly for every single weed that was well adapted to the environment we were making. And it was one of those cases of creating an environment that favors the species we don't want and then trying to poison them, hoping that it was going to hurt the weed more than it hurt the crop. And hoping was kind of the term that I have to use there because almost every one of these herbicides, I guess atrazine might have been the exception. That one was pretty mild on corn, but almost all these other ones, if you put too much on, they cause crop damage, right? which resulted in yield loss and other side effects. We started seeing more and more of these chemistries proliferating. And as 2,4-D kind of fell out of use because it wasn't, effective anymore. There was another chemical came out in the same class as 2,4-D, dicamba. And dicamba was a lot stronger. It also was much more volatile. And we had some issues with dicamba where you would spray a field and maybe a day or two later you'd have a hot, muggy night and you would see damage from it in a field a half mile away where the stuff just didn't stay put. It had drifted, and it would; these things would do so much damage at such low rates, even parts per billion on things like grapes, that it was really obvious. And, and a lot of these 
herbicides had chemical signatures where you could tell with fairly good accuracy which herbicide caused it. You just couldn't always tell who sprayed it or where it came from. Right. So this was kind of the environment that we were in in the 90s. And my wife and I used to talk about these different herbicides and the problem of resistance and the pro- all the other things that were that we were noticing around us. And profits weren't all that good. And at that time with about 500, a little over 500 acres, and we had a family started, there was not enough profit on that farm anymore to maintain a decent standard of living. And we started looking at niche markets and other ideas for expanding our income or adding value. We had a lot of ideas, and most of them were lousy. But one of them came along. We saw an ad in the paper asking to buy organic wheat. And we were, you know, we really knew that what we were doing was not going to continue supporting us at the standard of living we wanted. So we decided to explore it, even though everybody that we talked to told us it was ridiculous and there was no way that you could farm organically other than maybe on a small scale in a garden plot. So anyway, we had nothing to lose. We looked into it and the man offered us twice the money that wheat was bringing at the elevator. And I started doing all the calculations as to how much we could lose, how much yield we could lose, and still come out okay. And because the input costs were so high, uh, it really looked like a low risk to try it, at least at the onset, providing we could get the crop to grow. Mm-hmm. Now, another piece of our transition was that we decided to do our homework. We studied, you know, we had learned in the, in the university system that you study something before you do it. So I went back to Cornell, went through the library, and looked for books on weed control. And this would have been pre-chemical weed control. And amazingly enough, there were hardly any books there in the library. It makes me wonder if there were no books being written on weed control or if they just figured they weren't necessary anymore. <laughs> so then we looked a little farther, and we went into what they called the stacks. This is the old archive ones that nobody needs anymore. Right. And I found a, a text from the 50s. And in the bibliography of that text, I found references to work that had been done in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, especially in Europe, on weed control. And I ran across an amazing paper written by a professor. His name was Bernard Rademacher. In, in 1939, all the way, actually for most of the century, he was the guru of weeds in Germany. He was one of the first men to do research on chemical weed control the modern herbicides were modern at the time. And this paper that I found him, that he had written, had been translated into English. So it's actually still available in this country. To, if you know how to find something online, it's on eOrganic. But in it, he wrote, cultural practices form the basis of all weed control, while the various other means should be regarded as auxiliary only. And that really made me sit up and take notice because here is the guy who pioneered herbicides early on giving the opinion that this was not the basis of controlling weeds, which obviously fast-forwarding about 30 years, it had become the basis of it. Mm -hmm. 
Plus, if I might just interrupt you for one moment, sure. just to remind our listeners that we are listening to Food Sleuth Radio, and I am speaking with Klaus Martins, who farms organically in New York State. He is the owner and operator of Lakeview Organic Grain, and we are talking about how we have been transitioning farming systems from without farming without herbicides to farming in an extremely chemically dependent fashion and some of the risks along the way. So, Klaus, please continue. Okay, thank you. This is this is a subject I get really into, and it's it's very consuming to me because it's so so amazing that we have gotten carried away so far that we can't even. We don't even understand what our roots are and where these, how these practices came about, and they're so new. We haven't been doing it that long. But this, this professor who did the work on early work on herbicides mentioned cultural controls, and I didn't know what a cultural weed control practice was. I didn't know there was such a thing. All I knew was that you put something out that kills them, and I assumed what I was going to find was instructions on how to use cultivators or other mechanical means of killing weeds. And indeed, he wrote about these mechanical means of killing weeds, and, he, and I got a lot of useful information. But what I got was this puzzling statement of cultural practices form the basis of all weed control. And he was lumping off cultivating, he was lumping off herbicides, he was lumping everything else off as auxiliary only. So that made me start really studying what did he mean here? What are cultural practices? Right. And to put it in a nutshell, when we plant a crop, we are creating an environmental, a set of environmental conditions. And in that environment, certain species are going to be better adapted than others. What he was really talking about was creating an environment where the crop that we're planting is the best adapted species and where the crop has a tremendous biological advantage over all of the other things that could grow there, i.e. the weeds, just because it's better adapted to the conditions that we have given it. And he went into a, a great detail on things that I had seen happen in the field, and it opened my eyes and turned my thinking completely upside down as to how we deal with weeds and why, we're, why we were doing it the way I had learned to do it. And what I found we had been doing was actually the opposite of what he would call cultural weed control. We had been for 20, 30 years using basically cultural weed enhancement. Hmm. where the practices that we were using on our farms were largely the reason that the weeds had gotten so much harder to control. And it, it was true in the late 70s and 80s that if we had gone cold turkey, stopped using chemicals, but not changed anything else, just kept the same rotation, kept the same cropping systems, kept everything else, we would not have been able to grow crops or we would have had very poor crops. What I didn't realize was that we had take we had bought into a system that had changed the basic agricultural practices that made our crops able to thrive, and the ones that made our crops have an advantage over the competition, the weeds. And I, I suddenly found that what I was seeing out in the field made an awful lot of sense. And I, I know I had been puzzled for years, about the, the first year after we plowed down a sod crop like where there had been hay. It didn't seem to make much difference what we used in the way of herbicides. They always worked. And 
first I thought, well, it's because of the herbicides that have the big carryover that we used the first year. They must be a lot better. But then when I tried using them in other spots, they, they failed. So what I had read here was borne out by what I saw in the field. Klaus, may and I, that started a long journey for us. May I ask, how was yeah. it that farmers bought into this system? Do you, do you, do you have any idea how that change happened? It's, it's a very, it was a very interesting change. Early on, it was the ease. You know, a lot of farmers have talked to me about the long, hot hours in the sun sitting on a cultivator learning how to make the adjustments. And my old mentor who taught me how to control weeds chemically used to say, I'd tell my kids, if you think, if you get tired of adjusting that cultivator, let me tell you this, every weed you miss is one you're going to go back and pull. <laughs> and that was considered a tremendous incentive to make the adjustments right. Yeah. And, you know, that, that was the early part of it was this ease. Yeah, the easy. But then as the system changed, as we started doing more monoculture, cropping as we started using the chemical fertilizers more heavily, our soil changed. And all of a sudden, our, our soils and our systems had changed to the point where if we didn't use these materials, that we would have agronomic disasters. We would have had crop failures. So I, I think it was sort of like boiling a frog slowly by turning the heat up. Mm-hmm. We weren't noticing, you know, farmers weren't noticing that all of these new changes that we were making that we're supposed to make our lives better and our farms more profitable, we're changing our system and setting us up to have tougher problems so that we fell back on these poisons. And within about 20 years of doing it, we really did believe, like we were told, that you couldn't possibly farm. You can't feed the world without all these chemicals because you can't make crops grow. And obviously now I know that's a lie, yeah. Because we are getting higher yields today than we ever got when I was farming with chemicals. Mm. And uh, I would categorically say that organic farming can feed the world. There is no question about that, with one huge caveat. And that is it wouldn't be a diet that was based on high fructose corn sweetener and hydrogenated soy. We would have to have a much more diverse diet because in order for organic farming to work, it has to be built has to be built on a biologically diverse group of crops and a farming system that brings biodiversity back so that we can create the kind of environmental conditions in our fields that allow our crops to grow as the best adapted species and not need all of these materials to, quote, protect them. Well, you know, Klaus, I find your story so fascinating when you mentioned the frog in the hot water. Sometimes I feel like we're the frogs in the hot water now because with the increased use of chemicals and certainly changing to have a more biodiverse diet would be absolutely in the best form for public health. But I fear that because of the failure of the chemicals that we're using now that are associated with the genetically modified crops, namely glyphosate or Roundup, and this move now to bring back the 2,4-D that you remembered using decades ago, I fear that we are going to be the frogs in the hot water. Not really. Well, we are. We are. Yeah. Yes, and, and I was. And the one piece that I haven't told you about this story, that the last, uh, we started transitioning to organic rather slowly 
And the last time I sprayed an herbicide, I didn't plan on that being my last time. Uh, I went to fold up the sprayer after finishing spraying a field, and I was going to head back and refill it and spray the next field, and my right arm wouldn't move. And I had been spraying 2,4-D. You know, I'd, I'd, I, the way my wife put it, I stunk of it. I, you know, it, all, it seemed to come out of my pores. It was in my clothes. Uh, this is one of those smells that's really hard to, especially now looking back, I really hate to smell it. But suddenly I was, I kept trying, you know, that morning I was fine, but I could not fold up the sprayer. I had to use my left hand because my right hand wouldn't move. And I spent the whole summer paralyzed on my right side. And that brought us to a really tough ethical dilemma. And we were fortunate that we had already started converting to organic and had discovered good markets and discovered that the system did work, even if it was more labor. And never proved that that's what caused it, but uh, common sense tells me that I was poisoned that day. Probably was a cumulative thing. Absolutely. And and when these chemicals are tested, they're not tested in combination, but ironically, when I went back to look at the technical fact sheet on 2,4-D from the National Pesticide Information Center, I found, sure enough, the non-target organisms. It says that researchers have observed neurotoxicity, which is what you experienced, reproductive mm-hmm. toxicity, and developmental toxicity. In other words, birth defects. Yes. And this is kind of a scary thing because at the time we had a young family started and there's an awful lot of guilt and an awful lot of denial going on when we read these labels that have words on them like teratogenic or carcinogenic. And we know that the clothes that are going in the washing machine are full of these chemicals, and they're going into the same washing machine that washes the kids' clothes. And I know there's a lot of defensiveness, and I I can say this firsthand. I was one of those people saying, but we have to use these things. We can't grow crops without them. You know, we have no choice. But at the same time, my educated mind was still reading these labels and reading these reports of what what are the environmental effects and thinking, do I really want to be poisoning my kids? And then after being paralyzed, we had another ethical dilemma. And that's, I can't keep doing this anymore. My body won't allow it. But can I ethically hire somebody else to do something? that I feel is going to kill me. Mm-hmm. So at that point, we had to make the decision to go cold turkey and stop using chemicals on the whole farm. And that was when our transition was complete. And we were so fortunate that we had started transitioning to organic several years before because we had started, we had learned enough to know that it could be done. We, had, we were still on a very steep learning curve, but we had shown, had enough success to realize this was really an option. Well, Klaus, I want to just thank you so much for telling this remarkable story. And I think that for those of us who are listening, you've made a wonderful testament against the approval of any more 2,4-D resistant or dicamba resistant crops, enough chemical warfare on our land and our families. We're out of time. 
But I want to just remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. We've been speaking with Mr. Klaus Martins. He began his farming career as a conventional grower, and now he and his partner Mary Howell have successfully transformed their farm to be organic. It's called Lakeview Organic Grain, a certified organic feed and seed business based in New York State. Plus, again, I want to thank you so much for being my guest, and I want to thank our listeners for joining us. This has been a very enlightening conversation from the mouth of a farmer who should know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.